Let's pray together. Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray that you would walk into our lives afresh and anew. Many of us are sitting here this morning sort of surprised that we're here. We haven't been in a church setting before or in a long time, and we're surprised to find ourselves. But Lord, I pray that you would help us remember that it is no accident that we are here, that you have prompted our hearts. And I pray that you would meet any of us who are wondering what this is all about. Why are we here? Am I the only one that is skeptical and asking questions and is new to this experience? Father, would you walk into our hearts? Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for quite a while, who may be struggling with issues of, of worry, of fear, of wondering how we're going to make it to the end of the month with the money that we have, and here we're approaching a text that calls us to give, and we're perplexed and we're daunted, and I pray that you would give us grace, that you would meet us where we are, that you would wipe away our fear and our anxiety. For those of us who are here in abundance, we pray that we would be met with your great thankfulness that we are giving, that you would also remind us to be as sacrificial and as generous as possible. Father, as we interact with this text, would you move our hearts, not simply our bank account or our checkbook? Would you interact with us at a deep level, untie our hearts from things and possessions and money so that we can give freely to your causes and to those in need? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, in college, I made the very virtuous decision of joining a, a social fraternity. And uh, so, of course, my parents were wondering what in the world I was doing. I was new freshman in college. I was playing football. And then I decided to add this other 30-hour-a-week commitment. And so my grades weren't too great my first semester in college. But being a part of a fraternity, at least being a pledge, it was a lot of fun. But it was also, there was a lot of humiliation involved as well. And I remember Sunday afternoons were the worst day of the week because you never knew if you were going to get the call for the dreaded lineup. And what this meant is that someone from the fraternity would call our pledge class president and say, you have 15 minutes for your whole class to be on the wall in front of the fraternity house in alphabetical order with, tie, with a coat and tie on. And if it was freezing cold, that wall would feel like a block of ice that you were sitting on. And they would just let you sit there. No sign of life in the house. You're just sitting there waiting. It could be five minutes or it could be an hour. And then they would cart you down into the nether reaches of the fraternity house where all the windows are blacked out. And they would proceed to walk up and down the aisle while you stood at military attention for however many hours they wanted you to. And they would proceed to tell you everything about you that they didn't like. And I don't know why I thought this was fun. I think that um, I was relishing the fact that if I could just sacrifice for a year, that I would have three years to dish it out to the next three pledge classes. So that was what I was looking forward to. But they would look at your attire. Was it presentable? Did you have your pledge pen in exactly the right place? Was your hair brushed or combed or styled or whatever it may be? They would, add, they would talk about how you were standing, were your feet in the right direction, and then they would ask you the most uh, obscure trivia about the fraternity and its history. And if you didn't know it, they would yell at you, and you'd have to do you know, push-ups or whatever. But then they would get to the fraternity dues. And if you were a pledge, you paid your dues on time, 
or you were in big time trouble and you dreaded that lineup because even if you didn't have the money to pay it, you were supposed to pay it because you're a pledge. If you're a member, you could kind of go for a couple of weeks without getting in trouble, but a pledge, they had to pay it on time, every time. And I, I bet that many of us are sitting here right now thinking about giving as sort of our pledge dues, that if we're, we're either not measuring up or we are measuring up but not feeling very good about our commitment, and we're wondering when we're going to step out of line and that someone is going to tell us and that this sermon series, this passage is meant to kind of correct you, that it's meant to get you in line. It is meant to be a measuring stick for all of us and how we're doing in the discipline of giving. But what we've seen in each sermon, in each part of the passages that we've looked at, is that giving from first to last is about grace. And that the reason that Jesus, the reason that Paul talks so much about money is that it is one of the best ways to talk about grace. It is one of the best ways that we can understand where we are in relation to the gospel, where we are in relation to Jesus, what actually has our hearts. You see, Jesus and Paul both understand the human heart very well and how quickly it attaches itself to things and money and possessions. It shows us, as it were, our real agenda, our real hope for the future, our real purpose, and our real God. And as we think about giving, it's not a slap on the wrist. It's not trying to be a measuring stick to see how you're doing, but, it's also, but it is a diagnostic on how you understand the gospel and how you understand grace, not the rules. That's why Paul talks not about a specific amount, not about a tithe or a levy or a tax, but he talks about our hearts and what's at the center of our hearts. Because if the indescribable gift of God, the indescribable gift of the gospel is at the center of your hearts, and that's what's ruling your hearts, then you'll give, and you'll give generously and sacrificially. The tithe is redundant. Because many of us, if that's not at the center, we can tithe and yet be doing it simply as duty, simply to keep the the church off our backs, simply to make ourselves feel better about ourselves spiritually. But if we understand the indescribable gift, we'll give not out of duty and obligation, but out of joy and out of generosity. There's two things in this passage that we're going to look at. Generosity encouraged and generosity exchanged. Generosity encouraged and generosity exchanged. First of all, how does Paul encourage generosity among the Corinthian church? Throughout this passage and the ones that, that, that uh, were, came before, what Paul is saying is that money is yours by grace. And when you give joyfully to other people, that God's grace then flows through you. It goes out to them that you, by giving, that you, by possessing and then divesting it to other people, you are a channel of God's grace, that you get to be the hands and feet of Jesus that you get to spread the grace and love of God insofar as you see your money not as the currency of your own pleasure, not as the currency of your own comfort and of your own agenda, but insofar as you see your money and possessions as the currency of grace. 
what God has entrusted you with, all of your resources, whether they're your time, they're your emotional energy, your spiritual gifts, or your money, all of these things that God has entrusted you with are tangible and measurable and vital means of grace. They're the means by which God meets others' needs, by which He encourages those who are hurting, by which He alleviates the suffering and the poverty of other people. So when you give, you get to be a part of that process. You get to be a part of Jesus walking into that situation and extending grace. That's been the theme of the passage and of this series. And what you come to realize with wonder and humility is that when you give, you are answering someone else's prayer to God. Someone has prayed, God, would you help me find a way to make it to the end of this month and not run out of money? Someone has prayed to God, I am in search of spiritual answers. Maybe this church has those answers, and I'm going to go and find find out. Someone has prayed, I am emotionally distraught, and I feel like I can't take another step unless I get some help, but I can't afford it. I need to go to a counselor, but I have no way of paying for it. Someone has prayed those types of prayers, and when you extend your resources to meet those needs, you are answering those prayers. What a wonderful thing to be a part of God answering prayers in other people's lives, simply by giving, simply by alleviating, by, by giving up something, you give some, someone else an opportunity to see God move in, an, in a marvelous way. And he says, verse 6, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, you will reap generously. Somehow in God's economy, what you give also brings benefit to you, also brings joy and grace to you. There is a return on your investment in the kingdom of God and to the person that your that you're giving goes to as well as to you, that you get to see the joy that your possession is being able to help others when you relinquish it. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, if you're here just investigating, asking questions, wondering if this is this church, if, if, if Christianity holds the answers, don't you hope that your life might count for something more than just your personal comfort? In your best moments, don't you have an inkling of desire that your life and work might contribute to something that outlasts you? Notice what Paul says here. He quotes Psalm 112. He says, They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Maybe you're not the smartest person in the room. Maybe you're not the most accomplished. Maybe you're not the most talented. Maybe you're not the wealthiest. Maybe you don't have everything that someone else has. But each of us here can give. Each of us here can sacrifice something. And what Paul is saying is that by giving, you are extending righteousness, goodness, fairness forever. But before we go imagining statues in our honor, before we go thinking about plaques, you know, given in our name because of our giving, he also says in verse 10, Now he who supplies 
the seed to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You understand, when you give, you're simply passing along the gift that God has given you. It's He that supplies the seed. It's He that grows it and waters it. It's He that increases and enlarges the gift of your righteousness. It's hopeful and very humbling at the same time. Because anyone here, no matter if you feel like I'm not the most creative, I'm not the smartest, I'm not the most accomplished, anyone can give and effect great change in someone's life. A harvest of righteousness can happen through your simply deciding to give. But at the same time, it undermines your pride in that giving altogether. Because it's God that is giving. It is His seed to begin with. It is His abundance that He has simply placed in your hands and you are a steward. You are simply a channel, a conduit. So no matter how much you give, no matter how evident your giving is to the change, how evident change is related to your giving, you can't be prideful about it. It doesn't matter, in other words, that your time, your talents, your treasure seem very meager. God can use your gift to create a harvest of righteousness, of kindness, of compassion, of goodness that will outlast you. What Paul says, that it will last forever. It's incredibly hopeful. But whatever you give, you're simply a steward because it is God's resources that you're giving. So it's incredibly humbling as well. Now, how much should we give, though? What does it mean to sow generously instead of sparingly? Now, I've avoided answering this question directly throughout our series because Paul very conspicuously doesn't answer it. In fact, he is a a rabbi. He is a, a Jewish believer, a Jewish convert. And so for at least a thousand years beforehand, he's had the tithe to work off of. But that's been the guiding principle in Israel, that the first fruits of everything that is earned, you take 10% off of that and you give it to the temple and give it to the poor. So that has been the standing guideline for at least a 1,000 years, probably more. And so when he begins to teach on giving, the fact that he doesn't import that is very glaring and very telling. What is he saying? We're going to look at, let, let me just give you three things, three guidelines or principles or proverbs, if you will, that will help each of us as we determine what does it mean to give generously rather than sparingly. First of all, giving must be in significant proportions. This tithe was very specific, and it was very significant throughout the time of Israel. The fact that Paul doesn't bring it up, the fact that Jesus only uh, mentions it in passing one time is very glaring. Now, what could this mean? What could we reason from this? We could reason, well, that was part of the old system, and I no longer need to even think about that. Or we could reason that what the Bible has said is that those in the New Testament, those in the New Covenant, those that are the beneficiaries of Christ's work are more blessed, are more prosperous, are more abundant spiritually, are more wealthy spiritually. And what would that mean to the tithe? What would that mean to the 10%? Could it mean that it is not no longer a guiding minimum, but it's a starting point? 
that it's the place that we begin to think about how much we should give if you're a New Testament follower of Jesus. Now, some of us are thinking, wow, there is no way I can do that. I just moved here. I don't have a job. I've got mounds of of student debt, and I'm barely making payments on that. We just lost our car. It was repossessed. I'm underemployed. There's no way I could start at 10%. The other guideline that we have talked about is that giving should be sacrificial and generous. And that means different things in everyone's lives. Because 10% may be right now immediately impossible for you to do. But you can still give generously and you can still give sacrificially. Some of us, giving 30% may not be sacrificial or generous at all. That may, be, that may come with great ease. And so the tithe really is irrelevant to that. It's more of a question of what you decide to give as we look through these principles. Giving must be in significant proportions. We see the guideline of the tithe and the guideline of sacrifice. Secondly, giving should be, must be, a joyful response to God's grace. When Paul asked the Corinthian church to give of money to the Jerusalem church, he says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What a test. What he is saying is that a sincere Christian will give as generously as they see God having given to them, insofar as you and I understand and grasp the gift of the gospel, that that's what prompts us to give. Not duty, not obligation, not because someone is going to call you out, but because you are, you are thankful for what God has done for you in the gospel. Giving must be significant, and it must be a joyful response to God's grace. And then also, finally, it must be systematic and thoughtful. In his first letter, the first letter of Corinthians, Paul had said to the Corinthians, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. Giving spontaneously to a need may arise out of great joy, and it's something that's beautiful, But over time, giving will be more significant if it's systematic and if it's thoughtful. If you give consideration to, what does it say here? Your income. What can I give? And then you make a determination to say, this is what I can sacrifice for for a particular period. Maybe it's a month. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's 10 years. But you say, in looking at my income, in looking at the needs around me, here is what I am able to give. And sometimes when needs come before you, your response will be like the Macedonians that we looked at two weeks weeks ago, that they gave beyond their ability. But generally speaking, the reality of all of our lives is that we need to give sacrificially and generously based upon what we have, not based upon what we wish we had. He says in verse 8, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. In, otherwise, in other words, make a decision, determine, look at your income, and figure out what can I give, and then continue to do that. You should give what you've decided to give. So those are the three general principles 
I'm not giving you a command. I'm not giving you a percentage. I'm laying down just what the Bible has said about some specific guidelines that we can have. Significant, that it's a joyful response to God's grace, and that it's systematic and thoughtful. That's generosity encouraged. Now, in conclusion, generosity exchanged. We talked about how there's that reciprocal effect when you give to the kingdom that there is a return on your investment, that you receive joy, that you receive, a, you receive grace through giving. An exchange is that one action of giving results in another. There's an exchange of gifts. And we see this in a number of ways. Paul outlines a, couple of, uh, a, a number of different ways that giving results in thanksgiving, giving results in praise, and giving results in prayer. Now, let's just look at two of those because of time restraints. But first of all, thanksgiving. He says in verse 11 that you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity, your genero- through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. A number of years ago, Katie and I were in between jobs. We didn't know what the future held, and we were at a community group, we were participants in a community group, and one of the other families said, hey, I'd like to take you to lunch this week. And so we had lunch. He asked about our situation and our prospects and what our outlook was. And then he gave me an envelope, and he said, now don't open this until, you know, we're done and I'm gone and so forth. And um, I opened it, and it was a, a fairly substantial gift, monetary gift to us. And I had not really, I had not asked for it in any way. I had really only shared in the community group in cursory ways about what our situation was. But here was someone who said, I have resources, and I could probably alleviate some of the stress and the anxiety that the Prentice family is going through at this moment. Now, I thanked them profusely, wrote them a letter, thanked them verbally, I mean, just bent over backwards to tell them what an amazing encouragement this was. But I was quickly astonished at the hand of God at work in this, because I had prayed, God, I am very anxious, I'm worried, and would you help me in some way? Would you give me some bit of encouragement, because things seem to be going very badly? Now, it doesn't always happen like this, but God chose a very tangible way to express His care for us. And I began to thank God for His gift, because through that family, they were answering a prayer that I had, I had asked of God. Now, notice that biblical giving should breed equality between giver and receiver. Because what if those friends of ours, and when we thank them, what if we came and said, thank you for your gift, it meant so much to us, and they said, well, we just like giving to poor people. You know, that wouldn't have really engendered a lot of thankfulness to us because it would put them in a position of superiority and of power over us, that we were the, the ones that were in, in need, that we were the poor people. But instead, instead, their response was that God has put us in a position of abundance at the moment, and we think it's a great privilege to be able to extend that abundance to you. We're thankful that we can help. In fact, we enjoy giving. And if you don't end up needing it, then just pass it on to someone else. Do you see that there was not a hierarchy of, of giver and receiver? It was just that one was at a moment of abundance while the other was at a moment of need. And that they saw that abundance not as something that lended itself to their personal comfort and their personal agenda, 
but was that it was given to them so that they could give it to someone else. This type of equality between giver and receiver, this type of idea that it is God's resources that we're divesting ourselves of can allow us to give in the face of ingratitude. It can allow us to give in the face of abuse of the gift. It can allow us to give even if we think the gift is going to be wasted. I remember when uh, we were taking a trip, uh, Katie and I, and I don't remember if we had kids or not, but we stopped to get some gas, and it was in the middle of a nowhere, nowhere place, and uh, there was a guy that was just outside of our, our car window, and he was picking through the, the little cans where uh, the cigarette trash cans, you know, that they have the holes on the side, but on the top they have the, the sand, and there's all the butts that are stuck down, and he was picking up each and every butt and inspecting it to find out if it had any tobacco left that he could smoke. And Katie, coming out of the um, gas station, struck up a conversation with him and said, well, would you mind if I gave you some money? And he said, sure. And she gave him, I don't know, five or ten dollars. And I was looking at her like, what are you doing? And she got in the car and I said, you know he's going to take that money in and go buy cigarettes, right? And she's like, yeah, but I don't mind because that may be the only moment of happiness that that man has today. And the fact that I can give five or ten dollars, even though he's likely to waste it, that it gives me great joy to give him a bit of joy in his otherwise probably unhappy life. Now, some of you may not be comfortable with God buying cigarettes for someone, but my point is that Katie's joy wasn't diminished by the fact that her gift might be abused that it might be wasted, that it might go to buy cigarettes. And this is very important because as you give to the church, as you realize that we are a group of sinners, you're going to have times where you second-guess the decisions that this church makes. You're going to have times where you wish we would put more emphasis in a certain ministry. You're going to have personal conflict with the leaders, perhaps even me, and yet still be asked to give. And the beautiful thing is that you can, that when you understand you are simply a channel of God's grace and of God's resources, then you can let go of that gift and not have a controlling spirit once you give it. Then you cannot be demanding about, you understand how much I've given to this church, we must do this. You understand how I've sacrificed for this organization, why are you not doing what I'm asking you to do? We can let go. We don't have to control how the gift is spent, because it's not ours to begin with. It doesn't give us any proprietary interest in how that organization or that church is run. And then secondly, giving sacrificially brings forth prayers. It says in verse 14, And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. You see, there's a bit of holy envy here that, these, that the churches are going to have as the Corinthians give sacrificially. Those who give in the midst of poverty demonstrate that, in fact, they're very rich, that they possess, that they possess God's surpassing grace. They have a richness not of having, not of possessing, but a richness of being. And when you see someone, when what Paul is saying is the other churches observe you giving sacrificially, that their hearts will go out to you, that they will, in fact, envy you because they see 
that Jesus has you, that you have been a recipient of the surpassing grace of God. Miroslav Miroslav Volf is a a professor at, at Yale, and he says, it is possible to have a fortune and as many talents as any Renaissance man and still be poor. The bottomless pit of our hollow core will never be satiated. No matter how much we have, we remain not enough people. The gratification of our desire will then know only outer obstacles and no inner restraint. No matter how much we have, we will still hunger and thirst, railing against the obstacles that others have placed in the path of the satisfaction of our insatiable desires. Inversely, we can be paupers and still be rich. How is this? The apostles' answer was this. If we are indwelled by the Christ who became poor so that we can become rich, we will be rich. No matter how little we have, we will be not not enough people, but more than enough people. You see, this turns envy on its head in that we are no longer envying someone because of their material wealth, their possessions, the abundance that they have in, in, in things they're having, but we are envying their spiritual abundance, their being, that we long for their faith. That as a Christian, we say, I want to grow in the grace of giving. And I see that this person has that grace. I envy them because they're able to be content even in the midst of poverty. They're able to be untangled from being uh, tied to things and tied to possessions, that their hearts obviously are freed from that. They're able to give, and so we long to be like them. It says their hearts go out to them because they're more than enough people, not not enough people. I, my hearts go out. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could be content. I wish I could be generous even with my meager resources. You see, giving brings forth thanksgiving to God. It brings forth praise to God. It brings forth prayers, prayers on behalf of the giver, that those who receive then praise God, they thank God, and they also pray for you as the one who is given of the resources. That's generosity exchanged. And Paul ends this way with one more great exchange. It says that all of this is dependent upon the indescribable gift. That you don't give in order to gain the gift. You give because you have it. You don't give in order so that you would be approved of by God, to wrestle His approval, His smile. You give because you have it. And those who have Jesus have that indescribable gift that they know that forevermore they are approved of, that God smiles upon them, that God's prosperity, God's abundance, God's wealth is theirs in full. And therefore, you give out of gratitude. You give insofar as you see the indescribable gift that God has reached into your poverty and made you rich, that He has reached into your spiritual poverty and made you spiritually abundant. When you see that, When in town, grasp that more, then we can give sacrificially, joyfully, and generously. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see that in giving, that we are the ones that are prospering. That as we give things away, 
that that is where true happiness and joy and fulfillment comes, not in the acquisition, but in the divestiture of our resources. Would you give us the impulse to do that? Would you help us to carry it out? Would you let this church and all of those around our city that are preaching your gospel and doing the work of the hands and feet of Jesus, would you provide us and them with the resources that we need to promote your gospel in all parts of our city? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.